Welcome to East Lake. My name is Brent. So glad that you're here. I am wearing the same shirt I wore four weeks ago, but when you have a day like you did yesterday, you just kind of got to put it back on, everybody. So I did wash it, uh, but uh, go Cougs. Fun, fun weekend for us, obviously. Uh, and then also today, uh, part two of our series, Ears, uh, Irresistible. And the idea behind the series has been simply this, that when we look at uh, the life and the teachings of Jesus as we see it in the New Testament, um, Jesus was exactly this. People who were nothing like him liked him. They were drawn towards him. Um, people, he liked people who were nothing like him. Uh, all the people he was supposed to be against, he was for. Uh, people who were supposed to be against him or not like him or think him irrelevant or um, you know, all the, whatever, they were drawn to him in unbelievable ways. And yet, uh, then you look at, like if we were to do like a survey for our church, uh, or uh, hopefully, and I, and I said use one word to describe Eastlake, I doubt anybody would write this down. And if we were to do this to the general public about the general perception about church, this word would probably never come up, right? The opposite would come up. We find, a lot of people find the church sometimes to be exactly the opposite of that, which is resistible. I, I don't want to go. I'm not interested in that. Maybe is you, and I don't know, you know what drew you here today, but I'm glad you're here. You're watching this line or doing something like that. Uh, but um, our goal has been uh, as, a, as an expression, as a, a local expression of the church in the Tri-Cities, um, to be to resist all of the things that would make us resistible, to embrace the irresistibility of Christ, and hopefully draw people into that sort of a thing uh, instead. So, um, it's been a two-part series. Or sorry, it's, it's three parts. This is the middle part, part two. If you missed last week's, there's a website you can go to eastlaketricities.com/talks. You can listen to last week's message or this one after this one's posted, or share this with somebody that you know. The, the thesis or the main thought behind this entire series has been simply this: If you walked away from Christianity, because of something that you read in the Bible or somebody told you something that was in the Bible uh, and you're like, I, I'm out. If that's in the Bible and I'm supposed to be like, that's supposed to be my book, then perhaps you left unnecessarily. And the reason, the fact that you're here may not mean that you've completely left, but maybe you've got a hand on the door. Maybe it's like total skepticism as to uh, what I talk about or what's, what's preached on or what verses are used or passages because there are some things in this that when you read, when you got a, a Bible gifted to you, you went through starting point and, and somebody gave you a Bible and you opened it up and you found a passage and you're like, see, if that's in there and you expect me to live as if that is true in my life, that feels incompatible to me. I don't know if I can, I can live in that way. Perhaps, perhaps. Let me, let me take a few weeks to talk through how you may, uh, may, you may not need to leave or you may have left unnecessarily. If, if you're still here, you may not. You can take your hand off the door and uh, you're welcome in here. So uh, what I said was important is for, for the most part, much of what is brought up as, I don't know if I can reconcile that with the way that I live my life, is found in the first three quarters of that thing you call the Bible, which we said isn't really a book. It's a collection of different books, and there's basically two major sections, uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And most of our issues, if not all of our issues, come from things that arise in this Old Testament literature. Um, and so we said, listen, here's the beauty that, you, that we often forget and every Easter, I remind you, every Easter we talk about the significance of this, but now we're in October, so what I talked about in April doesn't even, you know, it's not even registering anymore. But every, every Easter we remind us, listen, the centrality of our faith is ne has never been about a book. It's been about an event, the event of the resurrection. The book came out to record the significance of the event. The event inspired the book, and it's not the other way around. It's not like Jesus says, well, we got this book. I should probably do something about that. I should probably rise again or something like that, because that's what this book talks about. 
It's the opposite way around, especially in that New, in that new, uh, new Testament literature. Most of what was written was a, we saw something we cannot uh, forget. It has shaped us, and we don't want to let the story die with us. I think people around the world should hear about the person, the teaching of Jesus, that he, that he was um, called by God, that he healed people, that he spoke truth, that he lived this incredible lifestyle, that he died, that he was buried, and that he rose again three days later. So uh, with that said, I, I want to talk about uh, a, a major understanding between the difference between Old Testament and New Testament for us today, and the changes, the changes between uh, what shows up in as if we treat the Bible as a book, then what's contained in the Bible, the, the book, are basically two major covenants, all right? That's the breakdown between Old Testament and New Testament. Really, though, Testament's not the right word. A proper word for it would be an old covenant and a new covenant. And so um, I want to start off by distinguishing this, and it feels very small, but I'm telling you, it's huge. It's massive. And it's, it, it, takes us a long, it takes us a long time as a church. It takes us a long time as individuals to really understand through and process this fully. So I, I broke down all of the different sections into little subheadings to show you. I'm going to be trudging through some stuff here that I, I hope is interesting. It's inter- interesting to me. I'm, doing, I'm trying my best to make it interesting to you. Um, but there is light at the end of the tunnel because I'm just I'm piecing through sections. So this first section is called a brief section on covenants. All right? A covenant relationship uh, is uh, not a contract. It's not a if you then I will. It's more than that. Yesterday, I did a wedding in Howard Amon Park, um, and in that, I talked about how marriage is a covenant. Marriage is a, there's a relationship established behind this covenant. We are coming to this uh, thing, and I'm going to do some things for you, and you're going to do some things for me, but this marriage goes beyond if you don't, then I won't. It's beyond that. I'm going to choose to love you even on those days that I don't particularly like you. That's the beauty of marriage. Marriage is more than a contract. It's a covenant relationship. There is a covenant that is been established, uh, and it shows up first in Scripture in the Old Testament in that idea of uh, God reaching in to the silence of history, drawing his nation of Israel, or or a people, they weren't even Israel at that point, drawing a a group of people out of um, slavery in Egypt, this Egyptian slavery for 400 years, sending a guy named Moses to come, draw them in, causing an exodus out of Egypt and into a land that he's giving to them. And then he begins to, Moses goes on top of Mount Sinai, receives these things called the tablets or the, uh, the Ten Commandments or the Decalogue is the fancy term for it. Uh, these, this, this new law. In, in other words, I'm going to train you what it means to be my people. This is an, an old form of a covenant. It's a very fancy term if you want to impress your friends. Suzerian and uh, vassal treaty, which basically means somebody in power did something for somebody without power, and as a result of it, now there are strings attached. You kind of need to live in a certain way. That's what's going on with this old covenant. I'm going to give you 10 things. You are going to be my people. After all, what I did for you, you kind of owe it to me a little bit, but this is what I want to train you to be. You live your life in this way. We know them as the Ten Commandments, and it ended up being there's not really ten because they would kind of continue to grow uh, after that. They would end up being over 600 commandments about what it meant to be the nation of Israel. God establishes an old covenant, or an, a written, they wouldn't call it old, for them it was current covenant, but a covenant with a nation, the nation of Israel. You are going to be my people, and I am going to love you into the exclusion of the rest of the world, or in a, in a way more. God does not love the entire world equally, at least in Old Covenant literature. It's different. 
God loves Israel. You can be a part of this thing called Israel if you want. There is a minor surgery involved. But as long as you're willing to do that, gentlemen, you can be in this club. And you want to be in this club because this is the one true God, not all these other options that you have, right? Very exclusionary, very important. Now, um, it's important to note uh, that uh, that, has, that is all about, so what you have in the Old Testament, don't call it, it's not really the Old Testament. We don't even know what Testament means anymore. It's better to call it Old Covenant literature, that the first three quarters of your Bible, formerly known as the Old Testament, right, 39 books in this way, are about the Old Covenant, this specific God's chosen a nation of Israel to represent him to the entire world, right? All right. So then what takes place is Jesus comes on the scene and immediately starts talking as if something new is emerging. He uses language. He, he says, I've come to fulfill the old, uh, the, the, uh, the old covenant. I fulfill the, the teachings and the laws of the prophets and whatever. But, there, but he begins to talk about as if there's something new. And a prime example of this is he shares a final meal with his disciples right before um, he knows he's about to be crucified. They don't know this, but he's about to be crucified and, and, uh, and, and killed and raised from the dead and all that stuff. Um, and he shares this meal with them, and it's during Passover week in Jerusalem. So Passover week is like pretty... I mean, people would flock from all over. They would pilgrim, pilgrimage all the way into the city. They would have a meal that would recollect for them their time in Egypt under slavery. When God intervened, they would uh, kill a lamb. Uh, they would share that kind of thing. There would be like things that they would talk through, different parts of the meal at which different glasses were raised to toast these events and like this be this symbolic dinner of reminding ourselves what God has done. Jesus begins to lead them through this process and he breaks some bread and he says, this right now, this is my body that has been broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He assumed, listen, we don't understand the religious implications or the propaganda that he's teaching in this moment. He's assuming this, this, uh, this religious dinner for himself. Then he talks about the wine. He says, this, this glass of wine is my blood poured out for you, a brand new covenant that is being established in this way. This is significant, you guys. This would be like if you came to Christmas Eve service in like two months when we do a Christmas Eve service, and as you walked in, there's candles and the kids do their thing and everybody's all dressed up and everybody's happy because we're gonna go home and open presents and whatever. I don't know when you open, doesn't matter. And anyways, and all of a sudden, I get up here, somebody like me, and go, man, guys, thanks for coming to my birthday party. We're here to celebrate the birth of Brent Johnson today, which is so exciting. I know it happens in April, but who, it doesn't matter. Uh, my mom's here to talk about the day that the, their life's changed for the better. Like, it would be like, not only would you be like, I'm out, this is like weird. You would be like, I'm not even that religious, and that is sacrilegious, my friend. You should not be saying those things. That's what the disciples should have been saying and probably were saying under their breath. Like, what is he doing? This, this bread that's been broken for me, do this in remembrance of me, this blood that's a new covenant poured out for you, this, this talk of this new covenant. Listen, it would take them years to understand the significance about what Jesus is said here and is doing in this moment. He is fulfilling the old and making the old an obsolete covenant and he's introducing something brand new. He's introducing something new. So a better way of saying Old Testament, New Testament is this is literature focused on the Old Covenant. This is literature focused on the New Covenant that is being taken place. Now, I do want to clarify one thing too. Um, this is not about age. 
It's about purpose. When you talk about the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant, um, your phone that is in your pocket right now that you brought with you, when does it become your old phone? Is there a certain age that it reaches where it becomes now that it's two years old, it's my old phone? Or if it's three years old or four years old or five years old or whatever? Or is it the day that you get your new phone, that current phone becomes your old phone? And that thing that you've carried around for four or five years of your life, on the day that you get the new one, now no longer serves a purpose and it goes in your drawer. Isn't that how that works? The day I get my new phone. Listen, if right now you stole my phone, which shame on you for doing that, and you said $100 to get it back, ransom note, I would pay that money. It's that valuable to me. A week from now, if I got a new phone and you stole my old phone and then tried to get me to pay a $100 ransom note and said, hey, $100 to get your old phone back, I'd be like, my old phone? Oh, no, 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 you have it. You know, the camera's broken, the screen's cracked, go for it. It's all yours. That, that paperweight is yours. It becomes a paperweight the moment you get something new. This has nothing to do with the Old Testament. Listen, the Old Testament literature, the Old Covenant literature is hundreds and hundreds of years older than the New Covenant literature. That is true, but that is not the significance of why it's old. It's old because the purposes are now different. The early church recognized this, but it took them a while. It took them a while to realize that this, what we have on this side, was to a nation. But when Jesus came on the scene, John records him saying things like this, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Not God so loved Israel, and if you want in, you gotta get on board there's, there's more to it than that. It's beyond that. Listen, they included the old covenant when they, when, you know, because the Bible wouldn't, the Bible, the, the actual, um, the, the, the te biblia, the way the whole collection thing worked, wouldn't come together for hundreds of years, about 400 AD, right? All of a sudden, the church says there's a lot of extant literature on, on the teaching of the person of Jesus. It would be important for the authority that we have to be able to determine which ones are important to save for future uh, and which ones just need to kind of disappear and go away. That's when they decided, well, we're going to include the Old Testament and we're going to place it in front of the Old Testament because it actually informs kind of some of the newer understanding. It points towards Jesus. There are pictures of Jesus in the Old Testament if you look for them in that way. But it was never meant to be, which is what we do, treating some of these two things as equally. That's the part that gets a little bit troublesome. And the reason, and we do this, right? We, uh, you grew up in a church, I grew up in a church maybe, where um, pastors like me never made a huge distinction between this. They would preach from, they would say, here's what you should do. Here's a principle for life. And then they would proof text it with a verse from the New Testament, and then they would add in a verse from the Old Testament. And you'd be like, well, it seems like there's verses all over the Bible. The Bible says to do this, Right? The, the, which is true, I, I, I understand that those verses are in there, but it's failure to understand the uniqueness of who those things are addressed to, what is binding versus what is simply inspirational. Now, moving forward, I want to show you, I've said this before, this is really hard to let go of. In fact, anytime you talk about and challenge people's positions on the Bible, immediately like your feet kind of get set in. You're like, I don't know, man, you shouldn't be talking about this. This seems crazy. Um, so I, I get it. This is not a, like a modern problem. This has been a problem since the very beginning. In fact, uh, what a, we're going to read through a story in the book of Acts 
which is basically the actions of the apostles as written by Luke. He wrote a letter to a friend trying to, to by the way, Luke, a Gentile, um, trying to write, here's what I know about the actions of the apostles post-Jesus' ascension into heaven. Um, in Acts chapter 9, we get a fantastic picture of Peter. Uh, Peter is famous because uh, he's one of Jesus' disciples, but he's not just one of the 12. He's one of the three. Peter, James, and John were like the tight three for Jesus. Peter's the one who denies Christ for a, a few moments, and then after Jesus raised from the dead, he, he uh, meets him on this beach and, and redeems him, asks him three different questions, or three, the same question three different times, in, in essence of restoring Peter, and he, become, he becomes like the leader of the church, like this massive figure in this early church movement. So Peter... Uh, has heard from Jesus at one point, over and over again, um, that I'm establishing something new. It's a new covenant. His final words to Peter and the rest of the disciples in Acts chapter 1 is, uh, I'm empowering you to go into the entire world and tell them about me. Not just Jerusalem, not just Judea, not just Samaria, but to the uttermost parts of the earth. When he says that phrase, it's like this ever-growing concentric circle, right? Judea, uh, sorry, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the earth. I want you to go everywhere with this message. The problem is the disciples didn't do that exactly. And the early church didn't do that exactly. They pretty much just kind of stayed local. Like we're trying to survive, we're trying to make this, we're trying to figure things out. And they primarily went to Jewish people. They retained this message of, hey, if you are, if you want to become a Christian, um, then here's this fulfillment of the old covenant that we believe is the Messiah. If you want to become a Christian, you're a Gentile. You first you become a Jew and then you become a Gentile. You become, you do all the religious stuff here and then you can become this thing. And that's not how Jesus meant it to be. Peter's trying to figure some of this out. He realizes that Jesus has loosened up some obligations on him. Some of the old things that he had kind of grown up with, ceremonial uh, uncleanness, different stuff. If you've ever grown up in a really conservative um, like home background, and then you kind of got out on your own, and you got like that freedom to kind of like explore a few things, you understand the tension between, I know it's okay to do this, but I still feel like I shouldn't be doing this but I know that it's okay, so I'm just, gonna, I'm just gonna go in this way. So the next section that I wanna talk about is Peter's O'Doul's moment, all right? And here's what I mean by, you know, you guys know what O'Doul's is, right? It's Eastlake, of course you know what O'Doul's is. Okay, if you grew up in a home where you weren't supposed to drink and then all of a sudden you got in your house, out of your house and out of the authority and your parents are like, okay, whatever, I don't care, right? And then all of a sudden you're like, now I can, but I still got like, I got one foot still in my conservative heritage in my, I'm, I'm, I get to, you know, make my own choices and morals. This is where you start, and you're like, okay, drinking a brewski, and your buddy's like, it's not non-alcoholic. And you're like, ah, yeah, I know, but it tastes like beer. Still, you know, still like it. And, you, and you're like nervous, right? You remember that first one? You're like, I'm so nervous. I shouldn't be doing this. Now, some of you didn't grow up in a Christian home. You're like, dude, what are you talking about, man? I was like 16, bro. You know, whatever. Uh, all right. For some of us, it was a little different, okay? For some of us, this was a step forward, and we were very nervous in that moment. All right. Imagine Peter knowing that something new has been started through Jesus. Know that there's some sort of an obligation to go to, you know, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And, to, and Jesus' continuous talk about how this new covenant is for the entire world when previously it had been for a select group of people. What do you do with that? 
and living with the obligations to be like, I, if, if I intermix and intermingle with people who are not Jewish, that affects me. I shouldn't be doing some of those things. So here, here's, this is significant. In the end of chapter 9, uh, Peter uh, shows up, and he is, it says, in Joppa, which is modern-day Tel Aviv. Jerusalem's more inland, about 15, 20 miles inland. Joppa was on, on the shore. It's modern-day Tel Aviv, uh, or basically around there. Um, and so right on the Mediterranean, you got the Mediterranean breeze, and you got all this. So he is technically outside of Jerusalem, so he's doing pretty good. And check this out, verse 43. Then Peter stayed in Joppa for a considerable time with one Simon who happened to be a tanner. Do you know what a tanner is? A tanner is somebody who takes dead animals, skins them, and begins to make shoes out of, it's, a, it's a, a, basically a leather product. He makes leather products. And in order to make leather products, you have to touch dead things, right? That's how that whole works. That whole thing works. And in Jewish culture, if you touch dead things, you are ceremonially unclean. It's fine that you did that. It wasn't a sin, but you were not qualified to go into the temple. So here is Peter outside of Jerusalem hanging with his new buddy who's a tanner. Sipping O'Doul's thinking, I'm doing this, man. I'm, I'm little baby steps. I got this thing going on. Hanging out with a tanner. Probably shouldn't be here. Don't want to let everybody know. This on social media. Don't want my mom to find out that I'm here. But I'm... All right. Uh, then what happens in uh, verse 1 through 8 of the next chapter, chapter 10, uh, it says that there was this guy named Cornelius who happened to be a centurion, uh, which means he worked for the Roman army. He's a Gentile who had a military background. Centurion basically meant he oversaw people. They would say they oversaw a group of 100 men who like, reported to him. Uh, that number was flexible. It could be more than that. It could be a little bit less than that. But that was the title that they went by. <clears throat> Significant. They were the backbone of the Roman army. In fact, a uh, historian, Polybius, wrote this about centurions, just to give you a picture of who we're talking about here, right? Centurions are required not to be bold and adventurous so much as good leaders of steady and prudent mind, not prone to take the offensive or start fighting wantonly, but able when overwhelmed and hard-pressed to stand fast and die at their post. These would be the type of people that you respect. They're the solid, like, solid leaders. They're the people in the community. They don't make huge waves, but they're, they're, they're just, they, they, they're long and steady in the, in the right direction, and, and you know that they're core. So this is, this is who we're fighting. This is who we're dealing with. Somebody who is well-respected. In fact, it's noted that he had done great great things in the community, uh, that he was a God-fearer, and that he had been nice to Jewish people, and, and so therefore, um, like, worth listening to or something like that. So Jesus had an interaction with the centurion, by the way. Remember, he's uh, same, same sort of background. This, this guy had done some really nice things for some Jewish people, and so th- th- these, uh, these messengers came to Jesus and said, he's got a daughter that's sick. Would you come and heal his daughter? I know he's a centurion, but he's been really nice to us. Can you heal him? And, and he, when he heals him, or it was guy's daughter. The, the, the centurion says, you don't even need to come to my house. Just say the word. I know how authority works. You say the word and it'll happen. And Jesus comments to him where, I have not seen such great faith in all of Judea. Like, this is amazing. If everybody believed like you believe, that could be the best thing I could hope for. To, for Jesus to say that about a Gentile non-Jew was a huge ruffle of the feathers. Here we get another glimpse of another centurion, God-fearer, who kind of figured some things out and was trying to do his best, hearing about the things that had taken place in Jerusalem. He's trying to be a good Jewish person, but he hasn't crossed, it says he hasn't crossed the line of, of the, uh, the surgery yet, right? So, but he's trying his best, and then he hears that something new has taken place. He wants more information. He's approached, he falls into a, a trance is what it says, or some sort of a dream, or an angel approaches him. So there's a guy named Peter. He's hanging out in Joppa. You'll find him at the house of Simon the Tanner. Send him to come to you. There's some news, some, some updates on some things that are taking place. 
He, he sends an escort down to be able to go and, and invite him to do this. In the meantime, while these people are approaching the city, here's what it says in uh, verse nine of, of chapter 10 in the book of Acts. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, the, the uh, Cornelius' guys are on their way. Peter went up to the roof to pray. Now, in my research this week, uh, tanners often worked with these noxious chemicals, and so many times they would be really hard to live with. In fact, there was permission granted to tanners' wives not to have to live in the household if the smell became overwhelming. You are excused to be able to go live with an in-law while your husband's doing his work, and that's just, you know what, babe, it's the law. You don't have to, I can't be forced to stay here. I'm dying here. Peter probably went on top to get out of that for a moment, going, I'm trying to do my best, man. I'm trying to be like the, I'm trying to be real progressive here. I got my odules in my hand, but this is overwhelming to me. So he goes up on the roof to pray or whatever. He became hungry, wanted something to eat, and while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven open and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, which would be code for Jewish people to be like, "Uh uh-uh, no, no, you don't touch those. We don't eat those. Those are off limits. Those are the unclean meat right? As well as reptiles and birds, then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. In other words, here's all these animals. Here's all the things that you're not supposed to do. I'm telling you to get up, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. Never. Like, come on. That's serious, Peter? I'm telling you never. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Don't call anything impure that God has made clean. I think that that voice, that phrase right there would ring in his brain. And in the moment, he thought he was talking about specifically, you know, meat that's available to eat. Eventually, he would translate that to something more and something significant. But in the moment, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back into heaven. And it's as if he's like trying to digest this and understand what's going on when he hears downstairs a knock at the door. And then he feels this prompting to go down and hear about what's being asked of him. There's Cornelius' men are at the door. They say there's a, a Gentile. I know he's a Gentile. He's a centurion, though, and he's really great to us. He would like to hear kind of what's going on. Would you be willing? Would you be willing to come? And you don't have to go inside of his house because we know you're not supposed to go inside the house. You know, he'll, we'll meet in the courtyard or do something safe or whatever. But um, would you come and talk with him about this? And Peter agrees to do this. And in the entire time, he's got to be replaying this scenario. Because if you went into a trance and had a dream and it was about this kind of stuff and you really felt compelled um, uh, in this way, like that would... And then the timing of somebody who is ceremonially unclean, like I'm not supposed to be talking to this guy, and then I, and then I am, and then I, all, all I can hear about is don't call unclean what I have called clean. Don't call unclean what I have called clean. That would be going over and over in his brain. So as he's going up and he's making this journey up to Caesarea, which is about 20 miles north, um, that kind of thing is rotating around in his brain. He gets to the house. Somebody comes outside and falls at his feet, and he's like, I'm just a, I'm just a guy, man. Don't, don't, don't make this a scene, basically. Verse 27 says this. Peter went inside, and he found a large gathering of people. And then he's going to say something right here. And I want to preface what he says by, by letting you know that I think it's one of the most insensitive I can't believe he would say something like this sort of statements. Now, we're going to give him the benefit of the doubt because he's, again, he's in that O'Doul's phase of life. He's trying to make sense of all this stuff. He's got a little bit of a history going on with this. Here's what he has to say to people who have invited him to be a guest in their home. You ready? 
you are well aware it's against our law for a Jew, aka me, to associate with or visit a Gentile. In other words, you guys know I shouldn't be here right now. This is against the rules. There better not be any cameras and this cannot get out. I do not want any people to know that I am here. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. In other words, somewhere between that trance that he had in Joppa and the time he gives this talk in uh, Caesarea, something has taken place where he has been able to work this out beyond that vision was not just about meat. It was about something more than that. God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. Here's the implication, by the way. Until yesterday, I considered all of you impure and unclean. (laughs) And I had scripture to back me up. You were unclean. And I should not be even talking to you. And I've got all kinds of things I could point to to make this true. Verse 34, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. Look at this, every nation. All of a sudden, the wheels are beginning to turn. And for, for a second, he's, he's realizing maybe this isn't just about Israel anymore. Maybe this new thing that Jesus introduced is about everybody. Gosh, that would mean a huge change in the way we think about it. Yep, that's exactly what's going on. By the way, This all takes place about 10 or 12 years after Jesus' ascension. This is not like two weeks later. He's had two weeks to think about it. That's pretty quick. Nice job, Peter. 10 or 12 years later, guys. He thinks Joppa's a huge move. He thinks hanging out with the Tanner's a huge move. And God's going, enough, enough, enough. It's taking too long. Go up to Cornelius' house. I got like this mind-blowing thing I'm gonna talk to you through. All right. Verse uh, 36, you know the message God sent to the people of Israel announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ who is Lord of all. You've, in other words, you've heard some of this. Like the message has spread. It's been 10 or 12 years. You've heard a little bit about this. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. Verse 39, this is important for this series because he, Luke has said this multiple times. It's the exact same phrase. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. We are witnesses. What I'm telling you is not something I heard from somebody who heard it from a friend, who heard it from a reputable source. This is something we saw with our own eyes. We are witnesses to this. They killed him by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him from the dead, and on the third day they caused him to be seen. Verse 45. This is, uh, this is now um, a little bit later. This is fast forward. So Cornelius' house responds positively. They ended up saying, we're in, and they, they want to get baptized in the Holy Spirit and all this kind of stuff. All these, these things take place in Peter's house, and it's a wake-up moment for him like, all right, apparently God is expanding this to the Gentiles. And Jesus is like, I told you this so long ago. For God so loved the world, man. How did you not get this? Why would it take you 10 or 12 years to get this? But, but Peter and the church have not figured this out. They have not learned to let go. They're trying to continue to mix old and new, old and new, old and new, and not embracing the new for what it is and not embracing the new as it should be. So he begins to tell uh, these other people, uh, the circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. They were astonished. Oh my gosh, which kind of sounds racist, like, wow, we didn't think this would happen. Oh, wow. Even to them, unbelievable. Remember, to these people, God didn't love everybody the same in the Old Testament. 
the Old Testament literature, God loved Israel. God loved Israel. Verse 11. The apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God, which should have been something like exciting. Okay, this is great. Instead, here's what we find. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, now he's done with all that stuff up in Caesarea, he makes his way to Jerusalem. The circumcised believers, in other words, the people who have gone through surgery, we've already done all the hard stuff, criticized him. They're not happy about this news. No, 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 no. You're cutting corners. You're shorting the system. And they said to him, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and you ate with them. And Corey, Corey said you had no duels with them too. Is that true? Like that's significant. Peter retells the entire story for them. He goes through this whole idea. Well, listen, guys, I was in Joppa. I know, crazy. And I'm on top of the roof at the Tanner's house, and I, had this, I fell into this trance, and there was this like sheet that came down. There's animals. And then I vividly remember a voice saying, don't call unclean that which I have called clean. I thought it was about me, but then I immediately got a knock on the door. And I think it's about people, guys. I think that this is meant to be more than just about us. I think that if we would agree, do you remember when Jesus said these things? Like, it kind of went over our heads because we were so immersed in a culture that was all about Israel and all about being Jewish and about being good Jewish people and about being ceremonially clean and all that kind of stuff. And what he introduced was something brand new. And I think that brand new means brand new. I think there's a new covenant being established in all of this. Verse 18, after much talk, when they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God saying, so then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. What we're seeing here is the early church emerging out of the grip of an Old Testament theology and in finally beginning to embrace the first parts, albeit in a flawed way as, as will show up periodically in scripture or in the New Testament literature, but embracing a brand new covenant. Jerusalem hears about this. They begin to send up. We want, we want to send up a representative to go see this in person. So they send a guy named Barnabas. Then Barnabas, went to, uh, he goes up there to kind of verify what's taking place. He sees it. He's excited about it. He then, verse 25, went to Tarsus to look for Saul. Barnabas sees the expansion of this new gospel, of this new covenant with the entire world, and thinks to himself, who would be best equipped to carry this out? Peter still obviously has a long way to go. He still feels bad about this stuff. He still says stupid stuff when he shows up at people's home. He can't be saying that because there's going to be some people who won't give him the grace and be like, well, who are you to and slam the door on him? Who would be best qualified to take this message to the Gentile world? And immediately thinks of the story of a guy named Saul and we know him as Paul, right? He, he, in, in chapter nine, this would be two chapters previously, he's going to go persecute Christians. He's from the Jewish leadership. He sees this bright light on his way to Damascus. His life is forever changed. He immediately grasps the newness of this type of stuff. Paul kind of, after that story, it seems like he goes silent. He makes his way back to Tarsus and we don't hear from him. But in that moment, then Barnabas goes, I know just the guy. I know just the guy who can do this. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. 
Antioch would be located close up near Caesarea to the, to the east a little bit. The third largest city, Rome, Alexandria, Antioch would be a huge, huge Greco-Roman city. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church, taught great numbers of people. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. And that, you guys, is when the story begins to speed up. That is when Paul begins to go on his missionary journeys, planting churches in Ephesus and Colossae and Philippi and all of these different areas. That's when the church eventually goes and it goes into the entire world. But for 10 or 12 years, it was really hard to let go because they were trying to do both things at once. We're hanging on to old covenant stuff, but we know that Jesus talked about some new stuff, but we're not exactly sure how these things integrate, and we've got one foot in and one foot out. And the question then becomes, what are they going to do with all these people? And that's what we're going to get to next week. So really quickly, closing thoughts with this, or the last section I have for you is, what does any of that have to do with any of us? All right? <clears throat> number one, I got three, three thoughts, three ideas. I'm going to go through them kind of fast. They're going to be on the notes if you text the word notes to 97,000. But one of the things that makes us resistible is our propensity to mix and match the old and new covenant material. The early church was bad at this. Guys, we can still sometimes be bad at this. To look at something and say, well, what does the Bible have to say about that? Bad question to ask. Why? Because the Bible says, the Old Testament says, Old, Te- Old Covenant literature says we should stone her. The New Covenant literature says we should forgive her. What does the Bible say? It says two things, both contradicting. What do we do? We love to mix and match. We like to lay out a principle, find an Old Testament, find a New Testament, be fine with both of them, feel like they're equal. They're not. It's not that way. This is good stuff. Old Testament stuff is great stuff, but it's inspirational. It's not binding to us. We are not, you and I, unless you're Jewish. If you are, then then take it or leave it. I can't tell you what to do. But for the most part, we are not. We are under a new covenant. We have this because we have this Old Testament or Old Covenant literature because it informs us about a little bit more about who Jesus was. And most of the things that you will find resistible about the Bible are found in that kind of, in those kinds of writings. And we have this propensity to mix and to match because people like me and guys like me have failed to make a very sharp distinction for you about, listen, this is old covenant type of things. This was about God's covenant to a nation. But then something came along through the person of Jesus and he established a new covenant with people of all nations, we should perhaps lean towards that. That's we should. Number two, when you mix and match, you'll get the worst of both and the best of neither. And number three, new covenant values and imperatives stand in sharp contrast to the values and the imperatives of the old covenant. Many times when you read, you cannot integrate the two. So perhaps a better question to ask than what does the Bible have to say about it would be this. What does the New Covenant literature have to say about it? Which kind of feels a little bit flexible or, 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 or um, uh, a little bit long. It'd be Whatever. Maybe a better question that, than even that is what does Jesus have to say about that? That should be the thing that leads us. That should be the movement forward. If you come back next week, We'll finish this thing up and talk about how did that play out in the story of the early church. Let's pray. Father, sometimes when we talk about this, it can feel kind of so obvious, but then we always, we, we do find ourselves 
I, I, mean, I know I find myself hanging on to things that, uh, that make us kind of feel uh, guilty or feel a certain way or certain, it feels awkward to be like, that's just not, that's not for me. But I pray that you would guide us, that you, we would allow your spirit to guide us in this, this, this uh, idea of interpreting scripture for our own world and in our time and, and what, what is relevant for us and what is binding for us and what is authority for us. May we, may we be true to what your son Jesus Christ introduced as new. May that drive us. May that be something that we're known for as people. It's hard enough. It's big enough. It's not like we're giving something up. We're just fully embracing. We are fully embracing the dramatic call to live like Christ in his teaching. So give us the wisdom to know what to do with it, the courage to act on it in your name. Amen.